Hello, this is Ian Harper welcoming you to Business of Weather podcast, produced in association with Asia Climate Forum, Asia's largest event dedicated to extreme weather and climate change, flooding and poor air quality. In each episode, we'll investigate the increasing impact of extreme weather and climate change on business and society, and look at how weather technology and climate information services can help address the growing challenges. We'll also spotlight the new opportunities for entrepreneurs and business startups seeking to develop the business potential of technology innovations to help those affected by extreme weather. Net zero is a state where the release of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is balanced by their removal. Until we reach net zero, then climate change and global warming will continue, and so will the frequency of extreme weather and unpredictable weather events which threaten life, society and economic, financial and political stability. How big is the task ahead? In 2018, according to the magazine Nature, nearly 37 billion tonnes of CO2 were released into the atmosphere by human activities. This is equivalent to a cube of carbon dioxide measuring 27 kilometres on each side. So, to achieve net zero, we must remove all of this CO2 every year just to stand still. It is over four years since the world's nations pledged to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial levels as part of the Paris Climate Accord. However, these commitments are not being met and greenhouse gas emissions continue to rise. As things stand, there's little chance of limiting the rise to 2 degrees, while 3 degrees will be a major challenge. Clearly, Achieving net zero will require a huge effort by people, by society and by business. Most significantly though, it will require a major change in the behaviour of the fossil fuel industry, which is the single largest contributor of atmospheric CO2 emissions. Few people know more about what is required to achieve net zero than Dr Miles Allen, Professor of Geosystem Science at the University of Oxford, and also a coordinating lead author in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's special report on 1.5 degrees. Welcome to the Business of Weather, Professor Allen. Thank you. Right, to get the ball rolling, briefly, can you tell me about yourself and where you stand in the climate change debate? Well, I've been working on climate change uh, since the 1990s. and I've worked a lot on two questions, really, the uh, quantifying the overall impact of carbon dioxide on global temperatures, in particular, documenting the cumulative impact of carbon dioxide, uh, the fact that the total, it's the total amount of carbon we dump in the atmosphere, not the rate we dump it in any given year that really determines what temperature we end up at. And that's the basis of the targets for net zero that are coming out at the moment. And the other aspect I've worked on a lot has been the uh, link between climate change and extreme weather events. And so documenting that link uh, and understanding how we can quantify the role of climate change and extreme weather. 
Right, now, the term net zero has been coined to describe the objective of stabilising climate change. What exactly is net zero? Well, for carbon dioxide, it's very simple. It means that every tonne of carbon dioxide we dump in the atmosphere has to be compensated for by another tonne of carbon dioxide actively removed. So by active removal, I mean, you can't just wait for the natural carbon cycle to mop up that CO2. It won't be fast enough to keep stop temperatures from continuing to rise. If we want to hold temperatures stable, then we need to actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere at exactly the same rate that we're putting it in, or, as an alternative, to stop putting it in altogether. Right. Now, in general terms, how do you think progress towards achieving a net zero world should be measured? Should it be the number of policy commitments or pronouncements by national governments or multinational corporations? Or does there need to be some more concrete measure? Well, I believe that we need to actually measure what we're doing, not just what we're promising. And it's very clear what net zero has to mean in a world that continues to use fossil fuels. In a nutshell, there's only two ways of getting to net zero. One is to ban the extraction and use of fossil fuels entirely over the entire world. I think that's extremely unlikely to happen. I'm not even sure that it's something we want to happen in terms of the implications that would have for so many people's lives and livelihoods. And the other is to decarbonize fossil fuels, meaning we compensate for the CO2 generated by every ton of fossil carbon we continue to burn by sequestering away, getting rid of at least 3.7 tons of CO2. So that's the, that's the ratio. If you burn a ton of carbon, you get 3.7 tons of carbon dioxide. And we're going to have to get rid of that carbon dioxide in some way other than just dumping it into the atmosphere if we're going to stop climate change. Okay. Now, I'd like to focus this interview on the implications of climate change and net zero for the business and the investment communities, and then consider the role of government. So let's start with the business community. What are the main challenges for business of aiming for net zero? Well, many businesses, many of our largest businesses are still built around the idea that we will continue to dump carbon dioxide into the atmosphere by flying planes, driving cars, uh, moving things around the world, um, heating our homes and so on. Um, Moving further up the chain, a lot of our most profitable in absolute terms businesses in the world are engaged in the business of extracting fossil carbon from the Earth's crust and selling it to be burned. Now, in a net zero world, the business models of these companies is going to have to change. They may continue, they probably will continue to be extracting fossil carbon from the Earth's crust, but they're going to have to supplement that activity or somebody's going to have to supplement that activity by re-injecting carbon dioxide into the Earth's crust to get rid of it. That's the, the crucial change that has to happen. And it's actually incredibly easy to measure our progress on that because we can ask ourselves, well, for how many tons of carbon dioxide generated by burning fossil fuels are we actually getting rid of at the moment? And the answer, depressingly, is zero. It hasn't really changed very much for the past 40 years that we've been talking about this problem. So that's a simple way of measuring progress. And it's going to have to get to 100% by the time we get to net zero. Um, and as I say, we're not doing very well at the moment. Now, they say that every challenge presents an opportunity. Do you see a net zero target as presenting a lot of new business opportunities? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. I mean, we if we're aiming for net zero by 2050, that means we need to be getting rid of one ton of CO2 for every ton of CO2 generated by fossil fuel burning in 2050. Working back from there, the sort of fastest plausible rate of increase would have you at sort of 10% sequestration by 2030, 50% by 2040, 100% by 2050. Now, getting from where we are now to 10% CO2 disposal by 2030 is an enormous business opportunity. We're going to have to create an entire new industry, a carbon dioxide disposal industry, which will have many aspects to it. Some of it may be biological. A lot of it will probably be geological. We'll be capturing carbon dioxide and re-injecting it back into the Earth's crust. This is a whole new industry we need to build, and we need to build it in order to continue doing what we're doing, which is burning fossil fuels. What do you think business would look like in a net zero world? How would business function differently from how it does today? Well, we're going to need to create an industry of carbon dioxide disposal. That industry doesn't currently exist. But, you know, it's a little bit like we had to create the nuclear waste disposal industry when we invented nuclear power. Um, And we, we actually didn't do very well at developing the nuclear waste disposal industry. We left it rather late. And as a result, we have a great deal more nuclear waste to dispose of than we probably would have done if we'd approached the problem sensibly. So we need to recognize that we need to get rid of carbon dioxide properly, safely, and not just dump it in the atmosphere. And that's going to require us creating an entire new industry. How we pay for that remains a bit of a moot point. Um, A lot of people think of this in terms of, well, the government or the consumer should pay because it's the consumer that's getting the benefit of burning those fossil fuels. I think that's actually slightly illogical because most of the benefit of us continuing to use fossil fuels actually accrues further up the chain, actually accrues to the, the rent holder, if you like, when the fossil fuels come out of the ground. And so I think it would be more logical for the costs and the obligation to get rid of CO2 to be moved upstream. And that is actually something that, you know, I think people are starting to think about and starting to recognize it would be a much more efficient way of addressing this problem. If we were to do that, it would become the responsibility of fossil fuel companies to dispose of CO2 at the same rate that they're digging carbon out of the ground. And if they were to do that, obviously it would make their products much more expensive. You know, ballpark, it would add about $100 to the cost of a barrel of oil. But crucially, we don't have to get to 100% sequestration right away before anybody panics and thinks the price of oil is going to treble overnight. Um, We need to get to that situation by mid-century. And an increase of $100 in the cost of a barrel of oil over the next 30 years is probably not something the world economy can't absorb. Now, presumably, some types of business will have a tougher time than others reaching net zero. What types of business do you think would face the greatest challenges? Might some types of business be completely incompatible with net zero? So that's something I think the market will have to discover over the next 30 years. We don't need to get to net zero tomorrow, but we do need to get on with thinking about how we're going to get to net zero because investments are already being made in plants, in systems, in infrastructure that will still be in use in a net zero world if we're to achieve our climate goals. So we need to be thinking ahead. Some industries, you know, the generation of power from coal, for example, may no longer be profitable 
if you include the cost of disposing of the carbon dioxide generated by burning that coal. Other industries, for example, like aviation, um, may be substantially more expensive if you also include the cost of recapturing the carbon dioxide dumped in the atmosphere by flying a plane or flying that plane on fuel that's been created, synthesized from carbon dioxide in the first place. Both of those options would make aviation net zero compatible. Um, if you include those additional costs, aviation flying will become more expensive. Not unrecognizably so. It'll probably go back to being about as expensive as it was back in the 1980s or so. So I don't think it'll be, you know, for, for aviation, this is very different from you know, a global ban on it, which some people seem to be talking about as the way of achieving uh, our climate goals. Um, but we just need to recognize that over the next 30 years, it will become pricier. Right. Let's take a look at the fossil fuel industry. You said in the past that this industry has the biggest role to play of all in solving the problem of climate change, and that the industry is actually up for that job. However, to date, the fossil fuel industry has proved itself to be a formidable and powerful political lobby when it comes to maintaining the status quo. Do you believe, do you seriously believe, that corporate giants such as ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP can change their ways, perhaps leave most of the assets they own in the ground, and play a positive role in the transition to net zero? I've no doubt these companies can change their business plans, uh, you know, turn on a dime, so to speak, um, if they need to. Um, they're actually, you know, they, they have proved themselves very resilient in the, in the face of quite rapid changes in the business circumstances they deal with. They've, they've had to deal with oil price shocks where the, the price of their principal raw material has quadrupled almost overnight, and they've worked out how to cope with that. The, the price shock of dealing with carbon dioxide disposal would actually be smaller than that in terms of its fractional impact on the cost of their product. So I think there's no question they could cope with this. Um, the question, of course, is, you know, what, what is their incentive to do so when they have an alternative business model, which is much more profitable, which is just to carry on selling their product and letting somebody else deal with the consequences? I think increasingly that alternative business model is coming under threat as people are realizing that the idea of, you know, these companies making private profits out of a, a phenomenon, global climate change, um, that's imposing risks on the general public. So you're sort of socializing the risk and privatizing the profit um, is something that's increasingly untenable. And that's probably a, one of the reasons why these companies find themselves obliged to pay pretty high dividends every year in order to persuade people to keep holding their stock. So I think it's, um, you know, the, the, the pressure is starting to build on these companies. There's no question they could change, but things are going to have to line up to give them the incentive to do so. Right, thanks for that. Now, business needs to finance its activities, either by investment or by borrowing. And as you've noted, the financial sector has a crucial role to play here, either by helping achieve net zero or by helping to maintain the status quo. Now, you've been instrumental in developing the Oxford Martin principles for climate conscious investment. Can you explain what these principles are and how they came about? 
Well, they were originally prompted, in fact, by our students coming to us to say they were concerned about Oxford University continuing to hold shares in fossil fuel companies and wanting to know what we were going to do about this. And uh, my university made a decision a few years ago that we were not going to sell all our shares in fossil fuel companies. We felt that to do so would be inconsistent, considering as a global university, our continued existence entirely depends on the ability of people to fly to Oxford to attend our courses. So it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be consistent for us to disconnect ourselves entirely from the industry that supplies that fuel. Um, but we also recognized that we had a responsibility to the next generation, again, as a university, to engage with the companies we own to work out what they're doing about achieving net zero. And the Oxford Martin principles were formulated to provide a basis for that engagement. And they're very simple. They first of all ask, is a company actually committed to net zero? Has it actually made a public statement to say that it is aiming for all of the emissions associated with its activities? So not just the emissions that it generates itself, but also the emissions generated by the products itself. And that, of course, is a crucial distinction for a fossil fuel company. Um, the company has to have a public commitment that it will pursue a business a business plan that is consistent with achieving net zero at some point in the future. We didn't in the original principles. We didn't say when. We just want the companies to say when. We want them to tell us how soon they can reach net zero. I'd much rather have a credible plan from a company with some ambiguity about the date at which they manage to reach it than just a a date and no plan. So I'm encouraged that uh, fossil fuel companies are increasingly coming up with public statements saying they're aiming for net zero, although they're generally quite cautious about which parts of their emissions they're applying this commitment to. So we need to make it clear, you know, it needs to apply to all of the emissions associated with your business, not just those as some subset that you decide you're going to hold yourself responsible for. And that's the first thing we need companies to do, to acknowledge the reality of what we need to do. Um, the second, of course, is the company needs to explain how it's going to work in a net zero world. So if it's a fossil fuel company and it's taking responsibility for disposing of all the carbon dioxide associated with the products it sells, how does it see itself still being profitable? in that net zero world and crucially is it not we'd like to reassure ourselves that the company is not relying on some kind of carbon bailout where they continue to be allowed to sell their product while the state clears up the carbon dioxide after them and the third one uh, is simply how are we going to measure progress to net zero so again these are they're, they're much, much simpler than most of the lengthy esg questionnaires that companies get given about you know their approach to climate and their carbon footprint and so on we're much we're much more interested in what their long-term vision is and whether management really have a handle on this that's consistent with their long-term investment investment decisions right okay let's take the investment sector in particular and by that i mean the big pension and life assurance funds and the large retail investors You've said in the past that a crucial test of any investment strategy is whether it drives or hinders achieving the goals laid by, down by the Paris Agreement on climate change, while also helping expand global demand for affordable, safe and clean energy. Where do you think the investment sector stands at the moment in respect of net zero? 
And what do you base your views on? Well, I know that the investment sector is increasingly asking these questions. And my concern is I'm not sure it's getting the answers it deserves. Um, there's an enormous amount of effort going into quantifying what companies are doing right now and what they might be planning to do over the next 10 years. So there's many, many initiatives around so-called science-based targets that look at company trajectories over the next decade or so to see whether or not they're compatible with this or that scenario for well below two degrees. To my mind, most of that is entirely irrelevant to the question of whether the company's got a plan for net zero. So there's an enormous amount of effort going into evaluating investments for their compatibility with different scenarios, which is dodging the main question. Which is? Dodging the main question of whether the companies we're investing in actually has a have a plan for achieving net zero at all. Now, the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosure, or the TCFD for short, as it's called, which is supported by many central banks and major financial organisations, has devised a set of voluntary recommendations about the information companies disclose to investors that shows how their activities influence climate change. How do you see the Oxford Martin principles interacting with these recommendations, if at all? Well, we've talked to the TCFD. We are very hopeful that as the TCFD evolves, and it is an evolving process, um, that they would eventually incorporate some variants of the Oxford Martin. We don't, we don't care if they call them the Oxford Martin principles or not. What we care about is whether they are asking the net zero question and asking it effectively, which means pinning companies down on what exactly they're planning to do with all that CO2 that will be generated by their activities in 30 years' time. It's crucial for investors to understand this because if an investor is investing in two companies – both of which claim to have a net zero plan, but both of which are relying on the same set of forest offsets, for example, to get rid of their remaining CO2, then that investor has a problem because it can't be the case that both companies are right. So that's why investors need to get stuck into this and work out what their companies are actually going to do and whether these companies' plans actually add up. Right, now looking ahead... Do you see the appointment by the United Nations of Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, who launched the Task Force on Climate-Related Disclosure, as its special envoy for climate action, as a positive step towards achieving net zero? Absolutely, because Mark totally understands this. Um, he is pushing as hard as he can for companies to raise their game in this area, and he understands the importance of um, private sector engagement in achieving our long-term climate goals. Now, you and others have said that one of the big problems standing in the way of coherent government strategy to address climate change is that climate change has become a party political issue. How do you think this situation might be changed? Well, I think people just need to recognise that the solutions to climate change don't necessarily involve major social disruption. Some people would like them to involve major social disruption because they want the social disruption for other reasons anyway. But it's not an inherent part of solving the problem. We could decarbonize fossil fuels. If I, when I talk to people within the industry, they, they acknowledge it's perfectly possible to get rid of the CO2 generated by fossil fuels in some way other than just dumping it into the atmosphere. That would, of course, make fossil fuels more expensive. 
but it wouldn't mean a wholesale shake-up of capitalism. And it can happen over the next 30 years in a way that uh, we can adapt to and we can adapt our industries around. So this doesn't need to be something that changes everything, in Naomi Klein's, Klein's phrase. So um, that's where I think a lot of the debate around climate change has become unhelpful because some people seem to be almost willing it to be as difficult a problem as possible so that they can shake things up as much as possible in solving it. And I don't think that's the way we're actually going to end up solving climate change at all. Okay, right. Just one final question. Realistically, to what extent do you believe the climate problem could worsen between now and net zero actually being achieved? And do you think it may become necessary to use climate engineering to try and keep global temperatures down? Climate engineering, in the sense of interfering with the power received by the Earth by the sun, is extremely dangerous, not because it won't work, but because as soon as you start doing it, whoever is doing it becomes liable for the weather that happens anywhere in the world. I mean, it's a complete nightmare scenario. So I very much hope we don't end up going there. And I think the, the taking a sensible approach to decarbonizing fossil fuels is the best way of avoiding it. Okay, well, that concludes today's interview. Professor Miles Allen, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Business of Weather, produced in association with Asia Climate Forum, Asia's largest event dedicated to addressing extreme weather and climate change, flooding and poor air quality.